0: Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high-income earners come to learn wealth-building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth, with your hosts, financial and wealth-building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabrisky.
1: Welcome into another episode of the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name's Christian Allen. I'm here with my co-host, Rodney the Pod Zabriskie.
2: Rod, what's up, man? Hey, I'm doing great. I realized, though, I lied. You're not really doing well? Uh, no, I'm doing well. I'm doing, oh, okay, well. Okay. I'm doing great. That's good. Uh, but what happened is when you very first brought that up in, the ver- in our first episode, you called me Rodney the Pod uh-huh. and asked me what I thought of the nickname. And in response, I said, I think it's great. I'm going to go get a mug. I'm going to put that on there. And guess what? You got I a never, mug? I never did go get the mug.
1: Yeah. That okay. You're right. That's you did lie about that. Then okay. Yeah, that would be good. That's a good gift gift idea for me, Rod. I'm gonna get you a <laughs> Rod the Pod. Although I'm gonna have to deposit. Maybe a, one of the sides will say Rod the Pod. The other one will go with the full Rodney. I like that way it. you yeah. can go either. Direction I can. I can flip it either I, way. I, yep. yep. Okay, Rod. Well, um, I'm kind of excited. Today is gonna be a, an interesting show, and the reason I think it's gonna be interesting is because we're going to take it in a few different directions, right? Okay. Normally when I come into these shows, I have a very specific topic idea, like exactly where we want to go. And I still have some pretty good ideas on where we want to go, but yeah. today we're going to throw you some of the tough questions. Okay. So one of the questions is coming from a listener. So we have a special request from a listener. Mm-hmm. Um, so we appreciate them and we're going to make sure we touch on that. But the rest of them are just questions coming from me. Okay. Okay. So they, they, The context behind those questions, Rod, is that I do a lot of reading. I try to kind of get a feel for, like, what people are talking about. And then, you know, I'll go through social media. I'll I'll, I'll kind of pick out interesting topics and questions that I think could be intriguing. And anyway, in this example, um, Rod, there was a couple of, like, I don't know if they're controversial. Maybe in our industry, just a touch controversial. So we'll talk about that in a second. Um, But. They're just topics that are out there that people are having, I don't know, debates, but maybe,
2: maybe debates. All right. Controversy debates.
1: the good news is, Rod, you're going to come in here and uh, set the record straight. Like I said before, I have uh, some opinions on this too. So it's not, we're not going to rely exclusively on you, just mostly. Just Just, just So My my thoughts aren't the end all be all? They are, but I'm just (laughs) letting you know that I'm going to fill in some thoughts. Okay. 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 Right. Okay. Sweet. So um let's go and let's just do it. Let's go straight into the questions. All right. Again, okay. zero context for you at all. Here's your first question on what do you think of 40-year mortgages?
2: 40-year mortgages. Okay. Well, I mean, when you take it in the context of what we often talk about in terms of using debt to your advantage. And I I my my opinion on this is 15 A 15-year mortgage is less advantageous in that context than a 30-year mortgage. Oh, interesting. So along the same lines, if I say, well, compare the 30 to the 40, well, then because the 40-year mortgage puts me to a lower payment, I have to fork out less today, which means I have more leftover that I can then go out and invest. And if I can create more return on those dollars than the interest, the additional interest that I'm accruing by stretching out the mortgage longer. I guess I have to stick with you that have to line go of with thinking. The,
1: okay, okay. So let's talk about this for a second. So I was I listened to three separate podcast hosts talk about this topic, and the consensus was, guess what? They do not like the none of them like none of them liked the forty year mortgage. Right. Um, So you are very much swimming against the grain on this. Okay.
2: And and let me guess though. Can you
1: swim against the grain,
2: Rod? I'll... Against the current. uh, Let's do it. Okay. Yeah. Or the tide or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Okay. Here's the way that I normally hear people have this conversation. And so my... Again, I didn't see the article, but but here's my guess. Okay. They said in a 30-year mortgage, well, maybe even you start with 15. In a 15-year mortgage, if it's a... Whatever five hundred thousand dollar loan, you will have paid. Again, I don't know the numbers, but let's say it's one hundred fifty thousand dollars in interest by the time you pay it off, or something, right? Uh huh. Yeah. And then if you compare that to the thirty year loan, it's not just twice as much interest; it's a lot more. It's like you paid (laughs) twice for it, right? You paid four hundred twenty thousand dollars of interest. These are good numbers,
1: Rod. You're you're like on the right track.
2: So I I like. And then on the forty year mortgage, it must be insane. Like you paid. $700,000. $700,000. I don't know.
1: You'd have to be practicing complete jackassery <laughs> to go all the way out to a 40 year mortgage, Rod. The numbers
2: just become insane. Okay. But then, all right. So, in defense of my answer, take the same dollars that you saved or that you, sorry, that you had of extra money and you went out and invested it. Yeah. How okay. much extra value did you create? Did you create more than the, again, whatever it is, the $600,000? of interest that you ended up having to pay.
1: Okay. Okay. So you're saying take, take the lower payment, go out and invest. And then you're just like, now you've got an investment account lining up next to your mortgage. And then yes. it's like, if I combined those, is that, am I better off? Right. Yeah. And I think and most, most people would think if they actually went down that line of thinking, again, assuming that I'm able to generate even a slightly better return on the money than what I'm paying in interest. Mm hmm that that logic is yeah, absolutely and, on point.
2: And uh, just to kind of back it up even more, you would get to a place where you would have enough money to just pay off the mortgage if you wanted to. You would choose not to, but I don't know what circumstances would force you to have to pay it off. But if that happened, you would have the asset sitting there, you could use it and just pay it off and be done. So so that's kind of okay. the, the other um you know challenge that people often will have to that is your you're at risk for as long as you have that loan, you're at risk of if, if you, especially if you've paid a bunch of money towards it, you paid 90% of it towards it. And then you can't make that payment. They foreclose on you. You lost all of that money that you put into it. Well, again, that's only if you're out being frivolous with the money that you, that you saved. And again, that's a, that's a legitimate concern. If you can't be smart with money, then I, I my answer changes. But if you can take it and invest it and create more value, then that that's
1: okay. That's, that's interesting. And my head actually, my mind went uh, in a slightly different direction, but similar. So I decided that there is a what I and and now that you've kind of thrown this idea out there, I'm I'm less less confident that than I was before coming into this. I thought that there was one right solution here. Okay. It turns out there's at least two. There's at least two. But I thought this is really simple, Rod. So if you understand basic finance then um and and again money management in general like mm-hmm. there would be no reason to take putting out there and just do the same thing right so in other words i, I take the 40 year mortgage i have a $1000 payment instead of a $2000 payment that mm-hmm. i'd have on my 15 year mortgage and if i really want to expedite my loan then i just put the other $1000 back towards the loan yeah that's and I point. would then pay off the mortgage faster than I would have paid it off in a 15 year mortgage situation. So, like again, the pure math behind it just doesn't make sense. So two gotta get the 15 year because, like you said, you're gonna pay way more interest. But yet what they're not telling you, generally speaking, is that is that the reason they're giving that advice is because of because they don't think that you're capable of making good financial decisions mm-hmm. on your own and being mm-hmm. able to like put that those pieces together. Okay, yeah. so that's fine. If you want to say that, Rod, I'm totally okay with that. But can I just say what you ought to do is at least deliver the right way to do it and then say, you know what, if you can't do this, yeah, then make sure you get the 15 year mo- if you're not capable of putting the other thousand dollars a month toward it, mm-hmm. then get this. But I think most people are. If they really put their, you know, put their foot down, they can do it. Um, so anyway, my my thought was that that was the right way to do it. But I really like your idea, which is equally as right, mm-hmm. could be even better, especially if you're a wealth building investor type, then it makes even more sense. Because, because obviously, if I just pay down the mortgage faster, I'm just, I'm saving the amount of money, the amount of interest that I'm paying on the mortgage. Whereas if I can go out and invest and get a 15 or 20% return, then I could still be getting a 10% arbitrage on the money that's there. and yeah. therefore. That would be the better route.
2: Yeah, you know, you almost okay. threw out a megamindism there. Oh man, I, I you, which one? I, I, well, I almost thought you were going to say something like, "You know how he says less right?" And it was in this case, it was like less <laughs> oh, unright.
1: <yes>. That's right. <laughs> he's like, and you or I was. I'm trying to remember how he says. He goes over to Minion. He's like, Minion, you were right. I was less right. Anyway, I'm with you. I was less right, Rod. Um, I thought you're, I'm going to give your solution, the top, top solution. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, I had time to like contrive my answer. And yet you still, you still beat me. So good work, Rod. This is why we ask Rod the tough questions. The next question on the 40 year mortgage, and we're going to move to the next one. Okay. Does it make any difference whether it's an investment property or not? And the reason I'm asking this is because on the personal finance podcasts that I was checking out, they mm-hmm. believed it did. Oh, I should give you this. So one of the hosts I was listening to was making the argument that that when it's a personal residence, right, and you're getting a 40-year mortgage on a personal residence, you're generally not taking into account the actual cost of living in it and upkeep and all these other things and so it's not as strong of an investment therefore you want to pay the thing off as fast as you can hmm. I, again i don't buy it i don't think it makes any sense like the numbers don't play out that way but that's at least where where that context is but here's what he said he's like an investment property is totally different it's totally different now we can go to the numbers we can go to the numbers ah, and and therefore he was pro using it in an investment property situation. Um, and it was very much against using it on your personal residence. Any difference in your opinion? That's what I'm asking.
2: Uh, well, it, uh, I feel like he's he's um, backing me up on that. It sounds like right? it. because now so. he's saying if it's an investment, then you then you do it differently. If it's your own property, and maybe just the the mental mechanics or or, or like the emotional part of it that comes with it, you you can't think of it the same way but turns out
1: okay okay well i'm with you um i think that again the the math suggests that you take the lesser payment and again the reason you're taking the lesser payment isn't because of the math yet Mm -hmm. right the reason you're the reason you're doing that is because then you have less of a payment that's required of you right like Anytime that's that's always a win, right? Because yeah. there's nothing that says I can't make a larger payment. But guess what? There are people and situations that come up where uh, you won't be able to make
2: a lesser payment. Well, and, and do you know what he's also assuming for the investor? What that they're going to take the extra profit monthly, the extra monthly cash flow that they have, and yes. do something smart with it. And he's assuming that the homeowner that
1: so the homeowner can't
2: won't won't do what you're saying. Doesn't matter or do if what it's I'm the saying. same person. Right. Okay.
1: Okay. Okay. All right, Rod. That's why we ask you the tough questions. Um, okay. The next question I have, Rod. Oh, I'm so excited about this one. So mm. all right. I was, I was scrolling around um, yesterday. It was yesterday, I believe on LinkedIn. And I found a question that Sarah Grillo threw out there and she writes for Advisor Perspectives, and so okay. I get these emails, but she's – anyway, she's a marketing person but focuses in the advisor community, right? So so I see this post, and her post is asking the question – and this is the question I'm going to ask to you next, Rod. Are fees the same as commissions? Okay, so now oh. she's specifically talking about how advisors get paid yeah. and throwing out this question. Are fees, the same as commissions. And then you just have a a load of people who are like, okay, I want in on this question. Right. Um, and by the time I got to it, there was like 30 or 40 responses and, um, and it was really interesting. So my, my question to you, first question around this kind of how advisors get paid Mm -hmm. is from your perspective, are fees and commissions basically the
2: same and why or why not? Uh, to me, they're, they're not, okay. And it's, I think the biggest difference. Again, there there are probably many things I could touch on, but the biggest thing that I'm thinking about is the timing of when you get paid, and mm. and the total of what you get paid. Okay, okay. So on the commission side, usually, usually you get paid more upfront and less later. Yeah, I think. And that's with fair. fees, they'll. I guess they're more the ongoing. That, yeah, they're flattened like they're just saying, "Well, it's a 1% fee." Now, in that case, if I'm doing my job right, if I'm a, you know, broker broker and I'm increasing the value of your account, then I should get paid more as time goes on. Hopefully that actually happens. But anyway, it's it's that 1% per year like like forever. And in that case, when you look at it over a 10 or 20 year time frame, the person who's who's being paid fees is going to get paid a lot more than the guy who's getting paid the commissions.
1: And the idea there is that supposedly there should be a greater level of service and attention, right? And that's the whole idea behind the model is continually focusing on providing that value. Yeah,
2: and you're aligning your interests because as the client, they want their value to grow. As the advisor, they want the value to grow. They're motivated to make it grow because they earn more the higher the value goes. So theoretically again that the idea is that you're aligning interests
1: okay okay I think that's a good I think that's a good assessment do you have a preference like what's if, better what's better okay. is there one that's better or worse or or, or not
2: well uh, part of it is is we don't have a choice in some things right
1: yeah that's true and some level at some level some things are compensate compensate advisors one way mm-hmm. um, there's become more variants around mm-hmm. that. There continues to be more variants, yeah. but there are still product services that take place that just have one or the other, and that's the way and, they're.
2: Built. And there are certain things. So, for example, an annuity, mm-hmm. you can take more of the upfront commission, or yeah. you can flatten it out over a 10, 10 year period of time or something. And, I mean, initially, like early in in my career, I I, I needed the commission right i needed yeah. to be able to pay, be paid more and up, up front but the further we've gotten in and the and the kind of the more successful the more consistent we have have been at seeing business come in we're more motivated to to move to the other model cuz we end up getting paid more on the fee side it's true if you, if you spread it out more
1: and of course if you thought about it right like so let's just let's just throw this out if i have a 10 year annuity that pays me 5% com- commission Regardless of whether it was all up front or some sort of trail through there, mm-hmm. like I'm getting paid 5%. If I put the same money in my managed account and pay 1%, then obviously I would have paid double right. over the, like that 10-year time frame yeah. in one versus the other. Okay. Um, I don't think necessarily one's better than the other, uh, but I thought it was an interesting one. Okay. My follow-up question to this, Rod, is how important is it to work
2: with a CFP? Okay. Um, I guess the, the answer is that it depends on what you want. Hmm. If, if I'm looking for someone who can give me a really a complete uh, overlook of all of my finances, then I, I think that's, it's reasonable. That's like right. They if could, someone they says, be... Hey, I'm only willing to work with CFPs, certified financial planners, uh-huh. Then yeah, I, I could totally go with you on that. Okay. Okay.
1: So can I give you my opinion on this? Yeah. Um, if you said to me on a scale of one to ten, Christian, how important is it for you to work with a CFP professional? Mm-hmm. I would tell you that it is a certain way to go down the traditional path. Mm-hmm. So here's where they here's what happens. A CFP is proficient in all of the traditional stuff, right? So like theoretically, they should know all the basic things about asset allocation and rebalancing and doing those core. But guess what? You are not going to play in the alternative space. So to the extent that that's what you're looking for, to your point, Mm -hmm. they are generally, you know, there's a level of professionalism, a level of education that's been attained in that space. But here's the thing it guarantees you almost that you'll never get into the alternative space because that's mm-hmm. not where they play. And it's because that's not where they get paid.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. So yeah.
1: Um, anyway, that's it. Okay. But I have a further question. Oh, keep. can going. I just,
2: yeah. Throw one more thought out there. Cause the alternative to the, to what I was thinking is if you're not necessarily looking for someone to do everything for you. Yeah. You're not, you're not looking to hire that person that person out there, which by the nature of the the type of people we work with, and it's probably exactly in line with what you were just saying, the people who are working in the alternative space who want to invest in an alternative space, they kind of have to become do-it-yourselfers in a way.
1: You have to. There's no advisors out there. There are not financial advisors that I'm aware of who are totally proficient in helping people in stock market, hedge funds, I know that's part of the stock market but like you get into like the more sophisticated mm-hmm. hedge funds mm-hmm. and things like that. And then you go over to the real estate side. The that world has not like been conjoined, right? Yeah. So you almost have to become one of those people and what we see traditionally or we typically is what we see people who move into the alternative space they get into the real they they start doing a handful of things and then they pick advisors to help them with their tax mm-hmm. or with specific items that they're looking for focused attention to detail on yep um, and then by doing that they kind of bring it together but i i just think like if you're wanting to build wealth prolifically like the worst thing you could do is hire a CFP because they'll show you the perfect way to like crawl your way to a to a you know, 4% withdrawal rate in retirement.
2: Yeah. And to your point earlier, someone might say, well, I can do the alternative on one side and then I can have the CFP help me to the extent that I'm wanting to be involved in the, in the traditional, but I can tell you just from not having done it myself, but talking to a lot of people who have tried to do that, it's really difficult to find the CFP who is open-minded enough to not give you very strong opinions, uh, very biased opinions, right? Just again, because they're an education and background and the way they they earn their living uh, against what you're doing in the alternative space. They'll tell you all the reasons why you shouldn't be investing right. in real estate, crypto, ATM funds, life insurance, right?
1: And, and like you said, the biggest reason typically is because that most... Traditional advice, and and again, not every CFP is the same, mm-hmm. right? But yep. most of them are going to get paid primarily from AUM. Mm-hmm. The more money that they manage, the better they get paid. That's that ends up being the driving force. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that you can't be a good advisor and help people in these other ways, but typically, what we've seen is a strong um, urging mm-hmm. <laughs> of the mm-hmm. clients to go into this like more, you know, like what ends up happening is they start to kind of talk about the extra risk that's there. And like, it just yeah. kind of wears on people. And so it becomes easier to go into this. Like I know what it is. I've kind of, I'm comfortable with it, whatever. Yeah. So anyway, um, that's go- okay. Rod. I want to follow up. I don't want to get too detailed in that one. My next question is how about, okay. So I asked how important is it to work with a CFP? Okay. Question two, how about a fiduciary? This is big, Rod. Whoa. This is big. Okay. Yes. You have we- to be a fiduciary. And if you're not, uh, just go home. Fiduciary or nothing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So maybe first, most people are going to know what a fiduciary is, but describe what a fiduciary yeah, we'll is it. really quick. And then we'll talk about uh, I want your opinion on how important it is to work from a financial planning perspective with an advisor who is a fiduciary.
2: Okay. So let's define fiduciary that is someone who, because of their licensing, um certification, whatever they are obligated to act in the interest and in the best interest of the client above everything else above themselves, above their company. the client's interests are have to be number one, okay so that's a that's a fiduciary okay so then yeah. when like you said, there are those who say... You can only ever work inside of a world where you're where you have a fiduciary in, in your corner because if you don't have a fiduciary, then the opposite is true. The person you're working with will never work in your own interest. They'll only work in their in in the advisor's personal interest or the company or some some other who someone other than the client's best interest because they're not a fiduciary
1: can I just tell you I love a fiduciary in general like the idea of it mm-hmm. rings true to me okay here's my biggest problem maybe I have two I have two problems problem one is that this whole fiduciary thing has become a marketing ploy more yeah. than anything else yeah it's like this is the edge that the, that the fiduciaries are giving. And by the way, I've been down that road. Like when you go in the securities world, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're like, if you're series 65 license, we had to be fiduciary. Right. Yep. Um, but we dropped all that licensing. So Rod and I are no longer fiduciaries. We are no longer honest, good.
2: Um, <laughs> we don't fit <laughs> any in that of category those things. Anymore. We don't, we yeah. don't fit into this. Yeah.
1: So, but, but here's the thing. So the, the two sides are one, the marketing ploy And what's happening is everybody who is a fiduciary is like, oh, you can't work with anybody who's not, right? (laughs) And therefore, and it's scare tactics, it's that everybody who is not a fiduciary is likely out to get you. Not a fiduciary, then they are therefore a predator, Yeah. right? Okay, I don't like that mentality. I think it's wrong. Um, And to your point, Rod, there are many products and services that are really good, useful, and helpful that require something besides a fiduciary, right? Someone to sell that re- receive some sort of compensation in like a commission form as an example. Yep, yep. Um, Okay. So that's number one. The number, my number two thing is just that a dishonest person is dishonest. No, no matter what, right. Like yeah. signing a form doesn't suddenly make somebody an honest person. Mm-hmm. And that idea, like I get that there's, that there's like some value in, in a person feeling like the inner belief that I have to, you know, make sure that they take care of people. And really that should be all of us. I just genuinely believe that that just should be the standard no matter what. But the idea to me that signing a form um, or, or something like that to suggest that now I do it when before I didn't. And now I like to me, that's too, that's too like cut and dry. That's not how people work. Therefore it's ridiculous.
2: Yeah. So I have a response to that. Okay. Maybe a counterpoint. Uh, And then I'll counter myself because so the counterpoint to that is that they would say, well, a fiduciary, yes, they're taking on themselves that responsibility and they also have oversight. So there's a responsibility in the part of their managers, you know, whatever. They could get
1: punished
2: if they don't do it right. If, if they, if the oversight exposed that, you know, the, the dishonesty or the you know doing it in in the interest of them of the of the advisor instead of the client or whatever then then yeah then there's there would that punishment come okay, okay so then but now think, my, my counter to myself though. so yeah i think that's i think that's a well, good a, and piece like to you have. could
1: lose your license right? right so let's say that that you were found doing that therefore the response from oversight could be some sort of punishment or even losing your license and so then the question is Well, do I want to play that? But here's, again, I just think about it. Like if I did something, let's say that I went and, well, we've seen, we've seen situations where, where people take advantage of other people inside the insurance business. Mm -hmm. No question. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I still struggle to kind of like see the difference. If I go and, if I go and screw somebody over in an insurance product,
2: like I could get just as in trouble for that. That's exactly it. So that was the counter to my counter. Okay. Is there, there is oversight, right? So there, there are companies that, again, we're not, we're not, we don't fit under that quote unquote fiduciary thing. But when we sign a contract with an insurance company, they're creating some level of oversight, right? Or think about, you know, you put it in an annuity, annuity application and what's the, one of the biggest pieces of that annuity application it is, is the suitability. suitability and they yeah. take it very seriously. Absolutely. For a good reason. Yeah. For good so, reason, no question. Uh, and, and then even beyond that would be like the insurance department. Again, you could lose your license if you were dishonest out there telling people you're doing certain things and then not doing them. And the complaint goes to the insurance company. You lose your contract there. And the complaint goes to the uh, to the insurance department. You lose your license. So again, it, it, is there oversight? Is, is, are, are those things happening? Yes. The answer is yes.
1: Okay, Rod, um, because we're already half an hour into this and I have two more questions. I'm going to throw those ones out and we're going to go, we're going to get, I'm going to get to those ones at a later date. So I want to get to this question. We had a faithful listener and friend email in, Mm -hmm. Um, he's going to remain anonymous, but uh, he wanted to do us to do a comparison on various taxable versus non-taxable versus, well, you're going to go ahead and show us this. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Rod, and you lay out the premise first. Sure. And then show us your uh, results from it.
2: Okay. So specifically, what he was asking for is, he says all else being equal, the ROI on a certain amount invested in just straight cash. I guess invested is is, a loose term there because in this case, he's just saying, you take the money, you put it in your savings account or checking account. It just sits there, right? Yep. Um, versus 100,000 invested in a traditional IRA 401k qualified account versus 100k or again, this this X amount uh, that was taxed and then put into a Roth. So those are the three he asked for. Okay. I added two more. Good call. Okay. okay. So on the one and and we'll you know we'll, we'll show you here in a minute, but on the cash one, I thought, okay well there's there's an alternative to that, right so I, are there people who take who take a lot large amounts of money and do set them in the bank account for different reasons It could be emergency fund could be you know business reserves or whatever it needs to be liquid it needs to be available that that's why it's sitting there, but they leave it sitting there for long periods of time. So are there people who do that yes but that's usually like, one piece that's the liquid piece to their to their overall financial picture they have a lot of other money that's out invested in other places so okay. to go beyond again what specifically he was asking for i also added if you took that same amount of money and put it into a an after-tax brokerage account where you're earning x amount again we'll we'll keep the the return that you're getting inside of the these investments equal across those three the IRA versus Roth versus after tax. And then I couldn't help myself. I had to add a fifth one and say, well, what does the capital avalanche do with the same amount of money? Mm, okay. Again, I couldn't intriguing. help
1: myself. I'm excited about I'm excited about this. Okay. So you're gonna actually show your screen though. So anybody yeah. that's listening, if you have the ability to check out YouTube, then we'll actually throw these numbers up. Um, Rod's put them together so they're nice and organized and easily yeah. to
2: view. Easy to view, sweet. Okay, what do we got here? So I threw this together uh, this morning. Scenario one is our 401k IRA. Okay, and our our constant across all of these scenarios is I'm going to say, what if you put a hundred thousand a year away for the next ten years inside of each of these different buckets? Okay, and and then my other constant, uh, well, two other constants. Number one, the tax rate. Is twenty five percent okay across one hundred thousand in
1: twenty five percent tax yeah. rate, and
2: tax that and, and just to clarify, twenty five percent tax rate now while I am working, and then the same tax rate in retirement. Okay, okay, I just again to keep it constant, and then the rate of return in all of these. Uh, well, the first three is a ten percent return. On the money that's invested, again, we're just assuming it's traditional investments in the stock market, average of ten percent. Uh, check out some of our other podcasts to learn what we how we feel about average versus actual. So in this case, it's an actual return of ten percent. So in the market, you wow, actually might have to man. get twelve percent or thirteen percent. That's
1: an interesting point. I hadn't thought
2: about that to get the ten percent actual, and and we'll see where that kind of comes in later. With, with okay, so we're giving we're really
1: giving these like. Some strong inputs, right? Yeah, I, an I wanted actual to do that. linear ten percent every year.
2: Yeah, I wanted to do that for a few reasons. Number one, uh, I didn't want anyone to come back and say, "Rod, you're you're short selling this." The market will do, you know, does better than what you're saying. I'm actually even at ten percent. That's that's better than what historically over long periods of time it does, and and then especially when you compare average versus actual.
1: Yeah. Okay. I like again, it's, it. So, it's so this this is probably closer generous. to a twelve percent
2: average um, return. I like that. Okay. Good. Okay. So now in scenario one, four hundred one k, the money goes in. Uh, it's it's growing over time, and then so I, and and again, sorry, I, I want to take another step back. We're assuming a forty six year old is starting this. Okay. Who then puts puts it aside for the next ten years, and then retires at age sixty is when they start taking the income. Okay, picking income from age 60 to age 90 so for 31 years so in this case uh, when they get to the point where they're ready to retire they have 2.3 million dollars sitting in that ira account okay they go to their they go to their broker the broker says well you know we used to have the four percent rule but now it's three percent we're going to take three percent off of this which turns out to be about I just used a round number of seventy thousand dollars. Okay. Okay. But th- that's money that hasn't yet been taxed. It was pre-tax when they put it in. It grew. Now when they're taking it out, taxes due is seventeen five because again we're still at the twenty five percent rate. So net income coming out of it is fifty two thousand five hundred. Okay. Okay. Got it. So play that out over time. They take that all that income out to age ninety. They took out a total of one point six million, and again because of the that's the silliness of, it, of having a ten percent return, with taking the three percent because the the balance becomes grows. massive. Yep, uh, the balance became uh, thirty point seven million to the heirs, which then they had to pay tax again. We'll just assume they were they were in a twenty five percent tax bracket as well. So the net dollars that actually go to the next generation is twenty three million and some change. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Let's look at the Roth. <laughs>
1: okay so
2: this is scenario two on the roth we put the hundred hundred thousand aside hold on
1: really quick rod yeah quick just for clarity the first examples are traditional roth just means that we're going to pay the
2: tax first Yep. we're paying the tax tax later
1: on the first example we're paying the tax now on the Roth scenario okay keep going
2: yep and then everything you take out is going to be tax-free so you're setting aside the same hundred thousand but you have to pay tax on it, so do you pay twenty five thousand. So seventy five thousand a year for the ten years is actually what ends up going into the investment. Gosh, where so that has to 10%. be,
1: that has to be way less money at the end. If you don't have that twenty five thousand already, that has to be less money, right? You're it's, only investing. You're investing seventy five percent of the money.
2: Yeah. It's okay. True. Well,
1: I'm excited. Tell me what you came up with, Rod.
2: Okay. Well, here's what's interesting, Christian. In Uh, the year before you start taking the 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 income, so the end, you know, last day before you turn sixty, you start taking the income. You have a million seven fifty in your in your balance, and remember, you had about two point three million in the in the. Okay. So I was right,
1: Rod. You're way ahead.
2: But the two point three had not yet been taxed. Oh shoot! So we took seventy thousand of income to get fifty two thousand five of net after we had paid tax. That's the net amount that we had that was spendable. Well guess what 3% of a million is I'm going to guess
1: out 525
2: <laughs> You nailed it you nailed okay. it So it's it's the exact same income it's tax free this time you don't have to pay the tax but on, on to your point on the lower balance so same same number Okay and So when we fast forward your total income having come out is that 1.6 million dollar number you have twenty three million sitting in the balance, which again is a lot smaller than what you had, but you don't have to pay but any tax on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all passing on to your next generation. Okay, Rod, I'm I'm coming
1: up with like a an observation here. Okay, and tell me if I'm crazy on this, but it appears to me that scenario one and scenario two, with all things being equal,
2: are exactly the same. And you are correct okay with okay that. good
1: and yeah. this is a, this is a funny thing though because um what i remember like when i was in the in i had already been in the business for like four or five years mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and i'm in this training meeting with uh with my manager right this is still 15 years ago and in the moment where like they're having this conversation and he's like He's like, I wonder which one works out to be more like he and we we like genuinely didn't know in the moment. Mm -hmm. He like goes through and he's like doing the math and he's like, huh, it's the same. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, it's it's just a funny thing because we always think it's going to be some. The only thing that makes these these scenarios different is obviously different. If we differentiate tax rates and we differentiate rate of returns, if that doesn't happen, sorry, rates of return, if Mm -hmm. that doesn't happen, then all things are going to end up being exactly equal.
2: Yeah. And it's almost e- even knowing that like that that's what the expectation is. But when you're actually running the numbers and you're like, I wonder how it's going to come out this time. And yeah. you calculate it and it's like, it is the same number. Okay, Rod. So now that we know
1: that scenario one and scenario two come out to be exactly <laughs> the same, let's move into scenario three.
2: Sweet. Okay. So for scenario three, what we did is we took... The same hundred thousand a year going in for the ten years. In this case, it were we were paying the tax and putting it into an after-tax investment. Okay. Think of it like people who have money, they just funnel into a brokerage account or something like that. Right. And we're still using the it. same 10% rate of return. Yes. Yep. And then the same. Linear 25%. every
1: year rate of return.
2: Yeah. Okay. Now the the one thing that's different on the tax is as obviously it's an after-tax account. We're getting taxed on this as as the growth happens, and and pe- we get a lot of people are frustrated with this. Like in the brokerage account, you might say, "Well, I didn't take the money out." Yes, but they were your your broker was buying and selling mutual funds inside of the mutual fund. They were buying and selling stocks, so you, you actually still get some some taxes along the way. Uh, even that if you is didn't. an important point,
1: and and of course, if you held it everything exactly as is, then it wouldn't be taxable because it's taxed like. It's capital gains, right? Right. Yep. Okay. So that, but that is important. So yeah. m- most, more than likely, there's at least uh, in your your after tax investment account, there's at least some tax that's being paid year to year.
2: Yep. And we are applying a, a capital gains tax to that portion of it as you're as you're earning it and as you do it. Okay. So then Perfect. later, um, what's interesting is when when we get to the place where we're getting ready to start taking the income, the balance is a one point seven million. So it's a little bit less. Remember in the Roth example, it was a dollars Now we're a okay. dollars Okay. Okay. So, so the tax
1: had a little bit of a drag on it.
2: Yep. And but I wanted to keep things equal. Let's take the fifty-two-five of income again okay. because we're we're ending up in this unrealistic example, building this this massive uh, balance moving forward. And okay. by the way.
1: Rod, why did you? Why did you decide? You probably told me this already. You probably told the listeners this, but why did you decide to go with the ten percent return and a three percent
2: withdrawal rate? Oh, yeah, good question. Okay, so the ten percent, I didn't want anybody coming back and saying, "Oh man, you just were, you know, being so hard on this yeah. other side while being, you know, short-changing." On... Yeah,
1: you don't yeah. want to short-change the ability for a basic mutual fund portfolio to produce a decent return. Yeah, so we gave it a. What I think anybody would think is a, a solid return, especially that it, it it's, is it I, it's uh, linear. Yes. Okay. And then yep. what
2: about the withdrawal side? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because basically what I was doing is I was saying, well, this is the conversation that, that the broker is having with you. When you get to that point, you're age 60, you're saying, hey, I'm going to start uh, living off of this, t- taking turning my nest egg into a stream of income. Okay. And they would say, okay, well, what's a safe amount that we can take? And that's, that's where they would come back and say 3% or, or somewhere thereabouts.
1: Yeah, somewhere in that range. Okay, yep. I think that's fair. So you're just trying to build it out in what is like happening out there, realistic yeah. view, practical application. Yeah, exactly. Okay, excellent. But but it, obviously when you're earning a great return like this, the, the funny thing is we talk about the 4% rule and how it's all broken. Mm-hmm. Um, in this situation, it's very much not broken because if you are every year getting a 10% return yeah. and only – spending three, you're going to do pretty well. Yeah.
2: You, you probably wouldn't only ever take three, right? Let's be honest. You'd you'd take more and, and technically speaking, even in that model, they, they would say, take, start taking income and then, but then take increasing income to, to compensate for inflation and other things like that. So, but again, I wanted to, did not get too complicated with the example. Keep it relatively simple.
1: Okay. I like it. So, uh, now we get to the results of the yeah, so tax we, investment account.
2: We take the 52.5. So again, that number is going to end up the same. It's the 1.6 million total income coming out, because I normalized that that income for the 31 years. And then in the end, the balance that goes to your heirs, which again you've you've been paying the tax as you go. There's probably some uh, unrealized tax gains that, that would go to your heirs but for all intents and purposes i i kind of was treating it like like you've already just been paying the taxes you went so it's 22495 that goes to sorry 23 that goes to your heirs so that's interesting when you compare that to the roth option the roth should be better right because you get the tax advantages and and it is in this example this kind of apples to apples 23 million and some change coming from the roth 225 basically Coming from the after tax. Interesting.
1: It's it's closer than I would have anticipated.
2: Yeah, me too. I was okay. surprised by that too. Cool. Okay. Now, now we're um,
1: going to number four. Rather, yeah, this moving is to scenario. It's really intriguing.
2: For go yeah, the so cash this, option. <laughs> this is the one where I think just to to have, I think, see the reality of opportunity missed if you're setting money yeah. aside and not doing something with it.
1: Okay, Rod. Okay, before we get into this, I'm gonna. I have to say this. So, I was looking at uh, our our money insights, uh, just cash accounts, right? Uh And you do a good job of making sure that our cash is in like try to get it in like money markets and stuff. And I was looking at it, and I was like, I was just thinking to myself, like, opportunity cost really is all over. Like, sometimes Mm -hmm. I get lazy about moving money into the in the right places because if you have high balances that are like continually there, it just becomes like normal. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But anyway, here's my point. This kind of scenario, like the difference between if they would have even put this in like a money market account. Yeah. Like anyway, it's just, it's just interesting. So I think it does a nice job of um, articulating or making it really clear that you can't just save.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. The reality. Sorry. So in this case, again, it's the same hundred thousand a year going on in for the ten years. We pay tax as we go, so we have seventy five thousand a year going into just a checking account or under the mattress or the safe or whatever. Uh, so a total of seven hundred fifty thousand goes in. It's not earning anything. So it's seven hundred fifty thousand when it comes time shocker, to the income. shocker
1: okay, so that is a big, big difference between yeah. now the it's obviously really funny too, because like it's not invested, and then you know we're also going into the income phase, like hopefully yeah. no one would do anything like this like i I just really hope that this is not the plan, yeah. uh, but can I just tell you it's not shocking to see that kind of thing the result, right?
2: yeah. So yeah, so cuz uh, now you know before we start taking the income our balance is the 750, right yeah. as expected. Um we can't take 525 for very <laughs> long in that scenario. So I said, okay, well what would it be over the 31 years? How much could I take to basically just drive the the account to zero? So 24,194 per year is what I'm taking out of that no tax due because there were no gains. And okay, this so... one's
1: really this one's really exciting, right? Let's move off of scenario four. <laughs> okay. We've now talked about Sounds the Roth. Oh no, no. We talked about the 401k IRA example. We went into the Roth IRA. We went to the after tax one, which uh, changed a little bit from the previous two. Mm-hmm. Now we've done cash, but now we wanted to, we had to really like we we didn't have a choice. We had to show option five, which
2: is which is using the capital avalanche. So, and again, the, the, the listener most... didn't ask for this, but here we go.
1: Can I just say something, Rod? Uh-huh. This illustration that you're about to show, it really does show why this concept strategy is far and away the most effective income-producing strategy that like exists out there. Yeah. I
2: haven't seen anything that even comes close. Okay, right. keep going. Yeah. Okay, so 100,000 a year goes in. Uh, we are putting that towards the uh, the Capital Avalanche stacking policies as we go. And- Which means
1: we're using leverage each time. Okay,
2: Rod. So we've been through the first
1: four options. We have one option left to go. First one is our 401k IRA option or comparison. Second one is the Roth comparison. Third is the after-tax investment account, brokerage account style. And then we have the tax example. And finally rather the one we just had to do. It was the capital avalanche. And I'm excited to see what you came up with.
2: Yes, okay. So in this case, you have the 100,000 a year going of income that gets taxed. We pay the 25,000 in tax each year. So we have 75,000 remaining that goes into the plan per year for the 10 years, stacking the policies, to build it up, but get the most leverage possible. And when we play this out, we fast forward. Uh, after by by age ninety, we will have taken a total income of twenty million.
1: Twenty million. Okay.
2: So how does that
1: compare with the uh, with the uh, first ones, Rod? Well, the in- pretty similar in income, right?
2: <laughs> well, what's funny on the income is that you're... Forced to take less income in like that three percent rule, four percent you know whatever rule in in an account where you can lose value is just forces you to not take very much, not dare take very much, right yeah,
1: that's the issue, right because obviously, if you have those off years, then it kind of throws things out of whack, yeah. but to, to be fair, again, if you were getting a ten percent linear return for a few years in a row, you'd probably feel you pretty would. safe, increasing that rate but but here's the deal at the end of the day um, it's still about the total value correct and so we're gonna hit on both the money that I can take as income and the money that I would have uh, to as an estate planning play for my heirs
2: right because in addition to the 20, 20 million of income there's an additional 18 million plus 18.3 million of death benefit that would then go to your heirs so okay. all okay. told when you combine all of them, all of them are, are pretty impressive, right? When you just think about, again, we talk about this compound interest and, and kind of all these different principles. Now you add the leverage, especially, that's really what sets this one apart.
1: Okay, so Rod, if if I was able to predictably guarantee somebody a 10% linear return, mm-hmm. I would have people lining up around my block. To <laughs> yes, you would. Invest, right? Yep. So, so that part is, but here's the thing. Even with an impressive performance like a 10% linear return, the capital avalanche is basically double the amount of total capital that it's producing. It's Rod, it's an avalanche of capital. We it have is. not just not just the 20 million dollars of income, but another 18 and some change, 18 million and some change in death benefit. So it's important. Now there is one major difference that I want to make sure that we you hit on this. Um, but I don't want to pretend that there is not at least some additional level of risk that takes sure. place. Now I say that, and I, and I'm not sure how much that that how much more risk there is because obviously mm-hmm. we have a lot of things that we're doing inside the capital avalanche to mitigate risks. It's also using an IUL, so we can't lose money in a given year like I can yeah. in those other accounts. So it's kind of a weird dynamic in my head. Like obviously when there's more leverage that does increase risk, it has to in some way. Mm -hmm. And yet we don't have the market risk that that is associated with the other accounts. So in some ways they're, they're probably similar, particularly when you take into account that we're not using outside collateral on the premium finance design. So everything's super conservative
2: and self-contained. Anyway, think about it. What's interesting is is the actual asset, the underlying asset, these life insurance policies are producing about a five percent net return. Right, that's the actual return that the asset is doing. So then, it's it's the leverage and the tax free nature of it that gets you to these massive numbers when you compound it over the you know forty four years between when you started and and when you died.
1: Okay, Rod, this was fun. I think this was a good one. Um, I'm hoping. To our anonymous listener who was kind enough to send us in this question, that this is helpful. Um, You know who you are. Email us and let us know if we hit the nail on the head or if we just missed it completely. Does that sound good, Rod? That is a deal. Okay. Rodney, thanks for putting this together. This is great. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Money Insights Podcast this week. And we hope to see you next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.